0: Welcome to From the Booth, a podcast where we talk about the films playing at BYU's International Cinema. We are now in week five of the IC Winter 2021 podcast. My name is Marila Oskerson, Assistant Director of International Cinema. And today I am so happy to welcome former International Cinema co-director Steve Reap from the Asian and Near Eastern Language Department at BYU. Welcome, Steve.
1: Well, thank you. It's great to be here, Marie-Laure.
0: Lovely to have you. So the discussion today is on a Chinese film from 1984 called Yellow Earth. This film goes into a series this week about music, and I invite you to check the other films as well. But today with Steve, we're going to focus our attention on Yellow Earth. This film is directed by a filmmaker, Chen Cage, And this is the directorial debut for this renowned filmmaker. He did Farewell, My Concubine in 1993, and that's a film that was at International Cinema not so long ago. Yellow Earth, the story takes place in the China of 1939. Something that is very important in this film is that it brings in a lot of changes in Chinese cinema. We are introduced to this fifth generation, as they are called, of Chinese filmmakers. It's the first group of directors to graduate from the Beijing Film Academy since the Cultural Revolution. And so a lot has happened. A lot has changed. And they abandon traditional elements of storytelling and they're adopting new approaches. They react against a purity of some sort that was shown in the Cultural Revolution. The ideology, this purity of the ideology, is something they react against. And they were more daring, maybe, in the way that they explore different issues. What are some of the things? Steve, that you you could help us understand about about the changes that these new filmmakers are bringing to Chinese cinema.
1: Well, it's interesting that you should mention that, Mari-Laura. The two men most responsible for this film, Chen Kaige, the director, and Zhang Yimou, the cinematographer, had literally just graduated about two years before from the Beijing Film Academy, and they were in the first class to enter and then graduate from the Beijing Film Academy following the Cultural Revolution. And that's a period of about 10 years where you have a very orthodox Marxist communist ideology put forward and spread throughout the nation and had a tremendously disruptive experience on Chinese society. When Mao Zedong dies in 1976 and the government changes to a government emphasizing reform and opening up, one of the things that happens is that some of the restrictions that were put on Chinese cinema are relaxed, and that propaganda isn't the only way of making cinema. Cinema prior to this time is very propagandistic. It was designed to represent and support government policies and goals. And this is an example of a film which really does quite the opposite. It's very much critical of Chinese politics. And this is done both stylistically, as you, as you hinted at, and thematically. And in terms of style, you have a very different use of the camera, a very different use of sound. Um, instead of having very much dialogue-driven, story-driven films, this is a film that's image-driven. It's driven by the images that Zhang Yimou puts onto the screen. The dialogue in some scenes very, very spare. We have a lot of scenes of quiet where we mainly hear ambient sounds of wind blowing through these rural spaces in in northern China, and we don't have the heavy dialogue. We have very little diegetic music. That's what we often call film music. It's the music which is on the soundtrack. It's not really part of the story. It's something we as viewers see accompanying and supporting the story. We don't see very much of that at all. In fact, I I would hazard to say that if there's more than five or ten minutes of of this non-diegetic film music, I'd be surprised. What we have instead are these ambient sounds. We have singing. We have the sounds of wedding processions, of peasants performing drum dances and things like that. That's very different. The use of lighting, the way in which frames are set up. In most scenes, uh, in a traditional propaganda heavy film, you're going to have a lot of medium shots and close up shots of the heroes. And you'll have some establishing long shots of, of scenes, but those give way to closer shots. Here you've got lots of long shots and many of them are very long takes. The camera is very stable The shots are very static. You have long scenes of the countryside, huge expansive views that in aesthetics don't really follow what you'd expect to see from communist propaganda films or even from classic Hollywood cinema. I would argue that the aesthetics are almost more a Chinese painterly type of aesthetic Mm -hmm. where you've got these huge scenes of expansive scenery with teeny tiny peasants marching along mountain paths.
0: And the horizon, if we can mention this horizon, beautifully filmed. First of all, the cinematography in this film, very impressive and and beautiful. Unfortunately, we do not have access to the 4K restoration that was done in China. But if you're interested, you could Google that and you could see the difference that that 4K restoration is bringing to the picture. And it's absolutely stunning. So our picture is a little grainy and it's a little bit darker, but we can still see those long takes, the poetry that they bring, and they bring another space, right? That you mention is, is very much different from, can we call it, the Marxist aesthetic of, of the previous years? So we have this aesthetic that's reworked. The filmmakers are very young. I do not, I do not speak Chinese, so I'm, I'm not going to try. But the the cinematography is is done by this man who grew up in the region where it's filmed and it is filmed with such love it feels like the yellow of the earth the dust the the river so we see all those long takes taking in this environment it says something about the life of those peasants in this very dry desertic area of china
1: Yeah, it conveys the fact that life for peasants was very hard and the fact that the film makes the peasants so small, the framing makes the peasants small and the natural world enormous shows a pressure that's put upon the peasants to try and struggle and eke out a living where they are in an area with clearly shortages of water. We see scenes of them hauling water up from the Yellow River, where food is scarce, where life is difficult. We see a scene early on of a wedding, and it's kind of a little bit cryptic. You see them talking about they're eating food, and on a plate is a is a surfing plate with a piece of wood shaped like a fish. Mm-hmm. And what they've done is to cook a sauce that they would normally put on fish, but since they can't afford it or, or get it, they just put it on top of the wood and you just kind of eat the wood with whatever grain, rice or sorghum or something else. So it's a sign of the, the the struggles that the peasants have to survive in this very difficult environment.
0: Yeah, and it's very well shown in this film. It's true. The people are so small, always appearing on the margin of, of the image. You mentioned the non-diegetic film music that is very scarce in this film because this film is really filled with singing either from different characters but mainly from the young young girl, the main character in the film. And so if we could address the, the importance of the singing, the singing seems to be in itself a character as well that is definitely pushing the plot forward.
1: No, that's certainly true. And the plot is actually based on the Gu Qing, the revolutionary who comes onto the scene. He arrives with the sole purpose of collecting folk songs. He mentions that when he first gets there. And so as he begins, he walks on the scene and hears, I think, Sui Chao's father and her both singing. And he begins, gets out a notebook and he begins writing it down. And he mentions later, I'm collecting songs from the people because we're going to take them and set set new words to them so the soldiers can use them as they march along. And this is actually very in a very core element of Marxist and particularly literary culture. And Mao Zedong talks about this in his famous Yan'an talks, which were given an area, we see a scene later in the movie where Guqin goes back to his headquarters. That's Yan'an, that's where he was based. And Mao gives, talks about three years after the movie is set. He gives them in 1942 where he says, literature needs to be accessible to all the people, workers, soldiers, and peasants. And Marxist Maoist communism emphasizes specifically the peasant. And peasants, most of them were illiterate. And so one of the things they, they sought were art forms that peasants could access, and music and singing was one of them. And so this idea, and the soldiers, of course, that Gu Qing is trying to Collect songs to write new lyrics for were also probably illiterate. So singing was a very important method of artistic production and communication. And as always, in you know, in, in not just Chinese culture, a way of expressing inner feelings, a way of expressing your thoughts. And that goes back, you know, into classical Chinese drama, but it's still present very much in the modern era.
0: Oh, absolutely. So the music and the singing is so important and yet the collector seems to be missing the message that the young girl is singing and how is that possible and and what does it mean? So here she is singing things like, a tree can take root if planted on a dry stone. When will we poor people be able to live a new life? She's really asking for changes and yet changes is is not coming. Oh, we need to tell our auditors that we we are not going to stay away from spoilers. And we might talk very freely about the end of this movie. So if you do not want to know what happens... Maybe this is time to actually come back to our podcast after you've seen the the film. So we can ask the question about the role of communism in the lives of the peasant. At the end, we see a rain dance. Everything is dry. The crops are failing. And we see this clash between the traditional superstitions of of a rain dance and then the the lack of progress. The promised progress from the government is, is missing. And in the same way, it feels that... Communism is, is filling this young girl who says the best compost cannot save a seedling. Nobody can save me, poor Suede Zhao. To her brother before crossing the river, she says, I'm suffering. I cannot wait any longer. So, So do you feel the same way, Steve, that the collector totally missed everything that she was sharing with him? He did not collect those songs and the meaning. He did not act upon what she was asking for.
1: Well, the, the hope film does set that up. That's a central feature, Lore is the film setting up the collector's mission and its impossibility. The goal is to collect these songs from the peasants that can then be used to motivate soldiers. But the songs of the peasants, as they mention themselves, Cui Chiao and her father both touch on this, are sad, they're bitter, they're songs of struggles to survive. And so the question remains is, how can those songs really serve the purpose that Gu has been sent to achieve? And Gu Qing goes on, and he, as he visits with the family in their cave dwelling, he says, well, you know, things in southern China where reform is taking place, women have all these rights and have all these possibilities, and life is different. And this raises Sui Chao's hope. And as he leaves after his visit, he says, and I will come back. He <laughs> knows that she's been arranged to be married, and he promises her that he will faithfully come back to meet her. And as the movie goes on, there's a few brief moments where she sings very hopefully about the future and about how China can change. but as you mentioned as she is taking leave of her brother on the banks of the Yellow River and what she's going to do is she's trying to get to where Gu Qing is. Gu Qing has not has failed to come back. the Communist Party representative has failed to fulfill his promise to come back and save her from this arranged marriage. she's been the marriage has taken place and it's, it's described in a very scary scene we can talk about later if we want. Mm-hmm. but the point is is that she leaves and as she leaves, we get her last song and she's singing about hope and she's going off to Yan'an, the, the communist base area uh, where Guoqing is and where Guoqing is shown in the movie when he's not there. And um, she just, her voice dies mid-sentence mm-hmm. and she's ending, she sings the word gong chan and the word that's that was very poorly sung. <laughs> gong chan Dong, I think is what she says. Well, she should have said, but all she gets is gong chan, and she loses out the word Dong. Gong chan dang is the Communist Party. So she sings, mm-hmm. communist. And then you hear the sound of water rushing coming up on the soundtrack. Well, the sound effects are raised, and the water level comes up, and her voice is erased. We don't know what happens to her. Presumably, she drowned. Maybe she made it across. The movie is based on ambiguity. That's what's so unique to this movie, its complete departure, is all this ambiguity. But as you're mentioning, all of this failure of her to be able to finish singing her song is underscoring the failure of the party representative to come and get her, and ultimately the failure of the party to save the peasants in their extreme situations. Mm-hmm.
0: In, in many ways, I want to come back to what you mentioned about a conversation that the collector had with the girl's father. In the North, underage girls are given in marriage. He's saying in the South, uh, this is not happening anymore. They, the girls, then the woman can sing a new song. There's no matchmaking. The girls have worth, they're not for sale. And he says the world needs to change. So he's bringing all these. New ideas that the young girl really needs in her life in order to survive, right? So the South has already changed, the North needs to change. But the, the father's answer is we farmers have our own rules. And at some point, the the girl, when when she wants to join the army, but the, the collector is explaining to her, oh, we have rules and it's not happening like this. You need to be approved first. And this question that she's asking, can't the rules be changed? And I'm interested in her voice and, you know, her singing, of course, what she sings, what she says, the way she acts, she's very uh, submissive in many ways. But, as well, she's essential to the life of the family and of the community by extension. She brings the water, which I see as a as a great symbol of bringing life to the home. Without her, things stop men of the of the um, uh, countryside don't sew. She's surprised that this collector is sewing he's he's engaging in in domestic tasks, which other men around her do not do. So there's definitely a a more modern attitude that the soldier brings, but, but things are not changing in our community. But I'm interested in her asking... Can't the rules be changed? In the history of how women are portrayed, the history of Chinese cinema, is this like breaking the rules and is this really new to have women like this expressing dire needs for change?
1: No, I don't think it's new. I mean, I think this was already being discussed in the... You know, it's discussed in in a kind of heavily propagandized way during the Cultural Revolution. I mean, there's certainly images of strong women who are fighting the evils of the older traditional society because traditional China comes under attack under communism. And there are more sophisticated explorations of women and women's roles in cinema from the uh, 1930s onward. I mean, this is something that already existed. Mm-hmm. Um, what's unique about this situation is it's not a wholly positive, politically correct version. It's one which is questioning the status quo and then showing that there doesn't seem to be an an easy... We can infer what a good situation would be like, the situation that Gu Qing describes, but we don't see it actually fulfilled on the film. Because mm-hmm. by the end of the movie, she's um we have this moment where she is waiting for him to come back. He doesn't come back, and then we switch to her wedding. And the film is we see the cycle of 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 festive events, of weddings, and we we see her wedding, and you know, she's waiting for Gucci. And then the the horror of this moment of this arranged marriage comes in the scene where she's in the bridal chamber, as is traditionally case, everything is red. And she's dressed in red, wearing a red veil, a piece of of silk fabric. And then we see a hand. We only see the hand, a very dark, Mm -hmm. weathered hand, probably someone who's older, probably a peasant who works out in the fields, lifting up the veil. And we watch her reaction. We don't get a shot, reverse shot sequence. We don't see the person. We just see the reaction. That's very Hitchcockian. Hitchcock was notorious for trying to build suspense by not showing what people saw, but re- showing their reactions to what people saw that allows the viewer to imagine and imagine as Hitchcock always said something worse than probably anything he could create. And that's used here. Then we get an, a cut of you just know, a break and immediately we're with Gu Qing and Yan'an with these peasant dances and they're linked by the celebratory nature, although it's ironic in the first case and more, you know, truly celebratory. We then see these men with, dressed with red bows going off on horses to fight the Japanese. That's how a groom would normally go to meet his 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 bride and these men are not being married off to women they're being married off to war and the communist cause it's a very ironic link through the institution of marriage the use of the color red which is part of marriage and celebratory occasions this is all very new but very subtle you know people would have recognized it but the connection is is something the viewer is left to make and that's what's really underlying this film one of the new things is that rather than telling everybody how they should think the filmmakers present a series of images and allow the viewer to then conclude for herself how they should interpret the film.
0: Excellent. Very enlightening. Do you have other comments about the use of color in this film? Because it's striking, right? And and again, we don't have the best version of the film, but the contrast with the reds and the yellows and the blacks and some whites. Do you have more to say about the usage of, of color?
1: Well, I think it's very strategic, Laura. If you situate yourself as a viewer in 1984, you've watched a series of communist films. Red is the color of the PRC flag. It's a very important color in literature, in film, of expressing the party, its values, and virtues. One of the films, the landmark films that's made in the early 60s and gets remade during the Cultural Revolution, is a film called The Red Detachment of Women. And red, of course, meant communist. So red equals communism. Red equals Good. In traditional times, red represents celebratory occasions. Here in the film, we see it used, but oftentimes it's it's used in almost ironic ways. We see it used in what should be happy events, women being married, celebrations of marriage, but women are, are not empowered, their agency is limited. And clearly, Cui Chow represents a woman who, as you're saying, is doing something new. And what's new about this is she's in this era of Post of uh, the post era, she's calling for something different. She doesn't want to go along with tradition. She wants something new. What she really wants is what communism has to offer. Mm-hmm. But communism does not deliver yeah. on its promises. That's what's kind of shocking. And that's a very subtle message. You need to kind of infer that. In mm-hmm. earlier films, it would be very clearly stated in dialogue. You'd have characters who are clearly heroes, characters who are clearly villains. The lines of good and bad will be drawn in a very distinct way. Not so in this case.
0: Very interesting. And this hidden message, how was it received in 1984, China, when it came out? How was this film received?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I'm not sure how widely it was screened. It was a film made by fairly unknown directors. And it was screened at a time when cinema was still somewhat controlled. I don't know if it's history, whether it faced any challenges of censorship. The whole idea of ambiguity has a long history in Chinese traditional and modern Chinese culture as a way of... Getting around censorship. In other words, you use historical events from the past to talk about something happening in the present. Zhang Yimou, the cinematographer, of course, is the famous director known for many, many movies. In his movie *Raise the Red Lantern*, for example, he uses red again as a critique of communism. He uses women again in that context to basically show the problems of authoritarianism. Here, however, uh, I think it's a bit more subtle. It's handled a little bit differently. But the key messages, what's, what's, what's more subtly conveyed here, this rethinking of communism, uh, what role does communism play? Can it solve people's problems? And in a subtle way to rethink communism's revolutionary history, something that the, the PRC is very proud of. This film asks us to look at it perhaps a bit more carefully and a bit more thoughtfully. Did people fulfill their obligations and promises to the peasants or not?
0: Yeah. Wow. So I'm wondering if the film is is in fact accusing communism of, of failing the peasant and failing the heroine of, of our film, the young girl who may have perished while crossing the river. What do you think?
1: Well, I mean, she certainly dies literally the words Communist Party on her lips. As I mentioned earlier, she's singing mm-hmm. this song. And then she disappears, and we really don't know what happens. There's no after story, and this is completely unprecedented in in film at this time there would she would always be shown she'd be shown making it to Yenon, being welcomed in and hope would be established. Mm -hmm. That does not happen here. Instead, we get a scene, as you described earlier, the the rain dance scene, where we see people still waiting for hope, still waiting for water in the midst of a terrible drought. Mm -hmm. And their go-to method is the traditional method to appeal Mm -hmm. to the god of the river Mm -hmm. and to ask the rain god to bring rain to their parched soil. And it's the girl's father, who is the person presiding at at this ceremony and the sun is shown there and all of the people are there dressed in clothing going through this ritual and then nothing seems to happen and then suddenly everybody's running around and we see the young her young brother Han Han uh, isolated he's isolated in this huge group of people and he looks off and he seems to see the the film seems to suggest seeing Guccian coming back. Mm -hmm. We see this image repeated three or four times of him coming over a hill, but we never see them connecting. We never see them meeting. The fact that it's repeated, the fact that it isn't fulfilled, suggests, is it a mirage? Is it just a dream? Is it just a a hoping on his part for some solution to this traditional method, which doesn't seem to be working? But communism doesn't show up to, to seem to solve the problems. It doesn't come up to find a way to to deal with the drought, it doesn't really seem to be there to save the family.
0: And yet that image of the little brother running against the movement of the crowd that is quite powerful and big, going one way and he's coming back, making his way uh, in between people running the other direction. This takes a lot of energy and vision as well. And he's young. So maybe actually the hopelessness that I felt, now that, you know, thinking about the horizon and, and the question of that collector coming back or not coming back, but still it's at the horizon which is very symbolic and meaningful, and the the young boy running, we'll, we'll say, uh, against the stream of of that crowd going one way, it is full of hope. Actually, I think I hope, <laughs> I don't know, it it is ambiguous. We can see things, and then we can question <laughs> what we we see. I wish I I could immerse myself in a Chinese mind frame and and understand with that vision?
1: Well, certainly the film ends. And of course, we don't know how, you know, The film may have that scene to convey an image of hope to make what otherwise would have appeared to be a very hopeless film. Mm -hmm. Um, I would guess that the film was probably reviewed by censors and it's possible that they may have made suggestions as to how they want films ended. This certainly for Chung kai next film, The Big Parade, the censors were very very clear about how they wanted that film to end and he had to make changes from Mm -hmm. his original plan. He'd hoped to end it in an ambiguous sort of way. He ended up being told to end it in a very very clear way where uh, the, the plot is resolved very, very clearly. Who knows what, whether that played a role in this film or not, that I'm not aware of.
0: Well, I, I hope that our students and um, anyone who sees this film will, will have great discussions about this. I'm wondering if you have a few recommendations or things for our students to look at as they watch this film. What are some of the things you would ask them to be aware of?
1: Well, I think the colors, use of color. We have red played against and occasionally dark blue. A lot of the clothing for most people is dark blue played against earth tones, the tone, the yellow earth that we're talking about here, which is the color of the soil in northern China. We see the use of non-professional actors. Here you have a lot of Films shot out of doors in natural lighting. We have scenes shot with what seems to be ambient sound and fairly natural sound recording a minimum of a film music. It's a very, very different aesthetic. Most students, when I've shown them this, I show this film after they've watched a variety of communist films, find it very disorienting. But the key here is, is that that's part of the beauty of the film is that it invokes ambiguity. It asks and raises questions. It doesn't resolve things. It leaves things there for us as viewers to work through and think about. And that was an, an amazing change for a film coming out in 1984, as China is reforming and opening up and beginning a new film history.
0: Well, excellent. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us today.
1: My pleasure.
0: Thank you for joining us today on From the Booth, where we discuss the films streaming at IC this semester. Please visit our website at ic.byu.edu for more information on how to access our films this semester with your current BYU Net ID. Our podcast is produced by the International Cinema Program at BYU and supported by the College of Humanities at BYU. We're solely responsible for the opinions and ideas expressed here as we do not represent any official position adopted at the university or its supporting institutions. As always, we thank our producer, Dewey Walter, and our sound engineer, Marina Ekstrom-Pratt, as well as the staff at the BYU Humanities Resource Center for their help and support. Until next week, keep streaming!